Our text for today comes from Romans 2, 14 and 15. When the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. How's everybody doing? Good? I woke up at 5.15 this morning, like totally ready to go. And then my son came in and was like, Dad, it's time to get up. And I said, you need to go back to bed for a little while until he has, has a little, uh, a, a little nightlight on a clock. And it, until it lights up, he's not allowed to get out of his bed because he's an early riser. He's exactly like his father was when he was that age. So uh, it's good. It's good. The funny thing about daylight savings is that uh, when it's dark and gloomy outside is that you don't really understand what you're getting, right? I think, I think if it's nice tomorrow morning, we'll, we'll all uh, be in a good place and probably have to pick up a lot of leaves that got blown off the trees, right? As a, as a new house owner, that's all I can think of right now, how many leaves I have to pick up. Anyways, uh, this morning we're beginning a new series, a new series based loosely on what is probably the most read and most influential Christian book of the last hundred years, of the last century, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Who has ever heard of this book? just by raise of hands. If you have not read it, it is essential. It is essential. We have a few copies in the back of the coffee bar. Uh, if you want to go uh, purchase one after, after church, it's the cheapest you will find it. So yeah, you can go back and purchase a book if you would like. Uh, and if for the first time when you read through Lewis's Mere Christianity, even if you don't completely understand it, even if not every argument or idea makes sense, it is at the very least, one of the more entertaining writers you will find. You will, you will enjoy the reading process. Uh, so through this series, we are not going to necessarily preach through the book. I'm not going to go uh, and preach exactly his ideas. But uh, what we really, well, I am going to preach through some of his ideas. <laughs> but what we are actually going to do uh, is to try and capture some of those ideas and see them through his lens, through, through both a biblical lens and through Lewis's lens, to kind of see and understand what it is he is trying to communicate. You know, Mere Christianity is one of those books that when people first read it, they are captured both by Lewis's clarity as a writer, as well as the excitement of encountering an intellectually robust approach to the Christian faith. I remember when I first picked it up, I think I was a sophomore in high school, uh, and thinking that I was, what I was reading in one sense was very new, it was novel, but in another sense it was kind of completely familiar to me. And maybe this is Lewis's greatest strength. His ability to introduce people, whether they're Christians or not, to Jesus and faith in a way that is both challenging and comforting, that is both intellectually stimulating and incredibly clear. And for more people than I can count, Lewis and his work have been both a, a kind of door into a larger and more stable, a more rich Christian faith. Uh, for many of us, Lewis has been a kind of great mentor, someone who through his writing has discipled people, has discipled their hearts and their imaginations as they pursue the way of Jesus. And I count myself among this group. And it is most likely because of this that many colleges and organizations and 
parachurch groups have built entire departments dedicated to Lewis's life and to his writings. If you want uh, kind of a primer on this, you can just type in C.S. Lewis Wheaton College. Uh, Wheaton College in uh, suburban Chicago has a really great website that has all kinds of recommendations for places to start with his writing and a short biography of his life, along with some links to some other stuff. But uh, Lewis's life is incredibly interesting, actually, because his life influenced his writing. You see, Lewis was born in Belfast, Northern Ireland, pretty, uh, and pretty quickly walked away from faith. He was a brilliant writer. He was a scholar of medieval and Renaissance literature. Have any of you read any medieval literature this week? It's a hoot, by the way. Uh, and he held faculty positions at both Oxford and Cambridge. If you hold a faculty position at one of those two schools, you're kind of smart. But if you hold, if you hold a faculty position at both Oxford and Cambridge, uh, you are above grade intelligent. Lewis uh, fought in the trenches in World War I, like everyone of his age uh, in Britain at the time. And he was well known to have a group of friends who were called the Inklings, the Inklings. Uh, made up of uh, a group of professors, mostly, who had a common faith and scholarly interest. They met in a pub called the Eagle and Child, and there they would discuss and argue and critique each other's work. Uh, one of his closest friends and fellow Inklings was a guy named J.R.R. Tolkien, if you're familiar with that. And some say that Tolkien patterned the character of, uh, of Treebeard, if you're familiar with The Lord of the Rings, uh, that character's voice after Lewis's voice. Uh, and, and, it, and specifically his manner of speaking. And I think we actually have a little clip here if you want to hear what Lewis sounds like. And before going on to my main subject tonight, I'd like to deal with a difficulty some people find about the whole idea of prayer. Somebody put it to me by saying, I can believe in God all right, but what I can't swallow is this idea of him listening to several hundred million All right, human that's beings. Good. It's good to have a guy's voice in your head when, when he's reading. I took a, I took a course on C.S. Lewis, Lewis in college, and we all just walked around doing our worst uh, Sean Connery impressions. Uh, there's, this one, there's this one book called The Four Loves where he spells out the word. is Storgy, S-T-O-R. No, see, you guys don't even find it funny. I did, th I did that purely for my college buddies who are going to listen and laugh. It's going to be great. Uh, Lewis had a kind of way of speaking and a way of thinking that was incredibly clear and also really, really insightful. It was really, really insightful as well. Clear and insightful, which are two things that we should all strive to be. But for our purposes today, probably the most interesting thing about him uh, as a writer is and the thing is probably the most compelling is his journey to faith, his journey to faith. You can read about it from, in his perspective, in a book called Surprised by Joy. It's his personal autobiography that tells the story of his journey to faith. But Lewis, for the first half of his life, was what you would call a normal intellectual atheist. But around the age of 30, due to some close friendships with people of faith and his own journey, came back to the Christian faith, becoming what he referred to as a normal English churchman in the Anglican Church. And so he writes from the perspective of someone who came to faith with all his wits about him, as it were. His eyes were open to all the popular religious and philosophical discussions of his day, and yet he found the historic Christian faith both spiritually compelling and intellectually reasonable. Both spiritually compelling and intellectually reasonable. 
And mere Christianity is Lewis's attempt at summing up both the basics of what he calls the mere truths or the simple truths of the Christian faith, the beliefs that all Christians, regardless of denominations, hold in common or should hold in common. And he approaches these topics as a writer, as a philosopher, as a lay theologian, uh, kind of all wrapped up into one. And so the book, uh, Mere Christianity, is separated into four different sections, four books as they're called. Um, the first is Right and Wrong is a Clue to the Meaning of the Universe. The second book is called What Christians Believe. The third is called Christian Behavior. And the fourth is called Beyond Personality, First Steps into the Doctrine of the Trinity. And in this book, he explores all of these different ideas. And so for the next four weeks, we are going to loosely follow that, um, that pattern and pay attention to uh, some of the ideas that Lewis is introducing us to about what Christians believe in a basic sense and in a mere sense. Now, what's interesting about mere Christianity is that it was not originally set out as a book. These were talks that Lewis gave during World War II on the BBC, on the radio, uh, some, t some nights as London was being bombed. And, then, uh, and people were so moved by these talks that, they, that he later uh, added a little bit and wrote them down uh, in book form. So today, what we're going to look at, what we're going to look at is this idea of right and wrong as a clue to the meaning of the universe. Sounds like so much fun, doesn't it? Are you ready? Are you ready? Right and wrong is a clue to the meaning of the universe. Now, this is one of those messages, I will readily admit, where I, uh, where we kind of are expecting something of ourselves, right? That, that we engage both our hearts, but also uh, that we engage our minds in this process today. Uh, that it is uh, an exercise in learning a little bit when you pick up Lewis's book and you specifically read this first uh, section of his book. And so uh, today we will be uh, dealing with some things that are slightly philosophical, but I think we all can handle it. All right? All right. Uh, Lewis was intent on writing in a way that engaged the mind that engaged the mind, not just the heart. He, he uh, wanted to engage the mind. And so when Lewis begins his book, he does not start with a personal story of his journey to faith. He doesn't even mention a Bible verse in this first section, and he does that on purpose. He starts this book with a kind of question. And the question is, is there a God? Is there a God? Does God exist? And the reason he started there is because it's a pretty pressing question, actually, right? Is there a God? Have you ever asked that question in your heart or in your head, out loud or in your mind? God, are you really out there? How, how can I know that you're actually there, right? How is it possible? What, what information can I gather to, to prove or to, to at least be semi-sure that you exist? It's a question that kind of bounces around. It ping-pongs in our mind, doesn't it? Is there a God does God exist? And how can we know that he exists apart from scripture and Christian witness? Is there something other than, the, than just the witness of the scriptures that can point to God? And Lewis is the perfect person to tackle this question. Because put yourself in Lewis's shoes for a moment. You're an Irishman. You're a British citizen an intellectual and scholar of literature. You know about the church. You know about Christmas and Easter. You even know about Jesus. 
But the first question you're probably going to ask if you're in, in his position is, is that belief reasonable? Is it reasonable? Does belief in a God even make sense? Can I believe in a higher power who sets the terms of our existence? Is it a reasonable thing to think? Does belief in God make sense in a world where we understand all kinds of things about philosophy and science and medicine? Is it just an antiquated idea that we, that we have passed? Can it make sense for a thinking person to believe in God? Can it make sense for a thinking person to believe in God? Now, a quick caveat before we get into the argument. No one can be argued into a relationship with Jesus in the same way that you cannot argue me into loving my wife, right? You can't, you can't, it's not an argument, it's an experience. But uh, these ideas can show that belief in God is reasonable, that it, that it is logical, that it can stand on its own philosophical feet. And one of the ways that Christians for quite a while have actually been going about making a case for belief in God is, uh, is by making an appeal to moral law, to moral law. Now, what do we mean by moral law? It's what, it's what Lewis calls the, in his book the law of nature. It's this idea that doesn't actually originate with Lewis. Most people actually credit a guy named Thomas Aquinas with it. But the idea is that, uh, the, the, but the idea is that the, um, there is a kind of moral compass for us. That, that we all have a kind of moral compass of determining what is right and wrong. And that this moral compass that we are all saddled with is a signifier, it's a pointer, that, uh, that actually kind of points to God. We see this idea in the scriptures as well. If in Romans 2, verses 14 through 17, this is what Paul says. He says, when Gentiles, or he just means non-Jewish people, who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Is written on their hearts. Now, when Paul says by nature here, many theologians and pastors believe that he is saying that there are a kind of remnants of God's character, his moral code, that are in a way of speaking written on the human heart. And that is, and that this is why, for the most part, humans have, throughout time, had a common moral code. There's, there's some moral things. We make exceptions for people like psychopaths, right? Uh, or people who have been mistreated so badly uh, that their view of morality has been horribly twisted. We live in a broken world, and this is the case. But for the majority of human history, it seems that there is a kind of morality written on the hearts and minds of people. And that this moral law or law of nature dictates to us what we should or should not do, right? Here's how Lewis puts it. He says, the law of human nature or of right and wrong must be something above and beyond the actual facts of human behavior. A real law which we did not invent and which we know we ought to obey. Oftentimes you hear this idea of a moral law simply referred to as your conscience. Your conscience. Why do, why do we have in our nature an idea of what is right and wrong? Some say that this is just a simple byproduct of culture and time, right? That as cultures develop, they just develop their own kind of moral codes and structures that by which the society is, is formed and that it functions. And, uh, and this is all that's going on here. There is no objective right and wrong. 
But I, th- but I, I think there's something slightly dif- deeper going on, don't you? Something that reminds us of the basic goodness that we experience in the world. You know, we all kind of agree that parents are supposed to take care of and not neglect their kids, right? We know that that happens, but we all kind of agree, even the people who probably neglect their kids, that ostensibly what they're doing isn't a good thing. And we all kind of agree that we should take care of the most vulnerable in our society, like the young and the elderly and the disabled. Right? For the most part, we believe this. Moral beliefs similar to what we have, other moral beliefs that fall into this category are similar to the ones we've been looking at in the Ten Commandments. Things like don't kill, don't steal, don't lie. And the question is, who, is put, who put this moral law in our minds and hearts? Why is it there? Is, there? is there a reason that is there? Because if no one put it there, if some, some being, some God, didn't actually uh, have a hand in creating this, uh, this, this world in such a way as that we have a kind of moral law, if no greater good is actually setting the terms in the universe for what is right and what is wrong, then actually, philosophically, there is no such thing as right and wrong. There's just utility. No God equals no universal moral law. And everything you think is good, truly good, is just a culturally conditioned opinion. But none of us want to believe this, do we? None of us want to believe this. We, we all want to believe that there is truth, right? We all want to believe, every one of us, that what we do and believe to be good is actually good in a real and true sense. We want, and, and here's the other thing, we want everyone we know to conform to our moral, the way we see the world, right? We want everyone to conform to the moral order of the goodness of the universe that, as we see it, correct? We do this as we see it through our eyes. But there is also something else that I think is even a little deeper than just wanting other people to conform to this moral order that points to the fact that this is a reality in our lives. Because it is not just external standards of behavior that we measure by this moral law. There are also kind of internal standards of behavior that we use this moral law to measure our lives by. And this is where our conscience comes in again. Because we violate our own conscience all the time, don't we? We do the stuff we believe other people shouldn't do, don't we? I'm a cyclist. I believe that distracted driving is wrong. That has literally cost people their lives. And people should stay off their phones when they're in their car. But I get on my phone in the car, right? I'm a Christian who believes that love of neighbor is one of the most important things any of us can do. But sometimes I don't love my neighbor, not one bit. Sometimes I blow all of the leaves from my yard into my neighbor's yard, and I justify it by saying, his tree dropped those leaves in my yard, and so back from whence you came, right? We n- See, this is what we're talking about. We know quite well that we don't always obey our conscience, do we? We don't always obey our conscience. We violate our conscience and do things that we know to be wrong, don't we? Which is strange, isn't it? 
which is strange. You would think if we had a moral code, if we had a, if we had a conscience that was communicating to us right from wrong, then we would be able to obey that thing. We would be able to follow it. But there's a, there's a duplicity in the human heart and mind that we all experience. And Paul sums it up really, really well a little bit further in Romans, in Romans chapter 7. This is a crazy thing to read if you've ever read Romans, but I think it sums up both in, in, uh, in the words, but also in the way the words are written, of how it feels to be a person who betrays their own conscience. Paul says this, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I, uh, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. That about sums it up, right? <laughs> That's how it feels, just FYI. I don't know what Paul said there, but that, that's definitely how it feels. <laughs> we violate that belief all of the time. Again, pointing to the fact that there is something over and above us that sets the moral standard for the universe, right? So there are these external moral laws that we believe that others should obey, and there is a kind of internal moral code or conscience that we know that we ourselves regularly violate. And the question is, where does this all come from? What, how, how, did, how did we get all of this? It definitely seems like something or someone is setting the terms of the universe. It, uh, it's as if good is good and bad is bad because somebody made it that way. Yet no one in the history of the world has ever been able to live up to their own standards of good and bad, right? We all fall short. We all live in ways that we believe to be morally wrong. We violate our own moral codes whenever it is expedient or beneficial for us. So what are we to do? What are we to do? Are we just to say, oh yeah, this thing exists and there's a moral code and I have a conscience and I'm actively, I actively transgress my conscience, and everyone out in the world also does that. So what, what are we to do? Well, th within the Christian worldview, we must be forgiven for that wrongdoing, within the context of the Christian worldview. Because in the Christian worldview, God is not only a being who sets the standards for right and wrong, but a God who also extends grace to us so that we can be forgiven for that trespass. Here's how Lewis puts it at the end of that first chapter of the book. Christianity tells people to repent and promises them forgiveness. If there has, uh, if therefore, it has, therefore, sorry, has nothing, as far as I know, to say to people who do not know that they have done anything to repent of and who do not feel that they need any forgiveness. It is after you have realized that there is a real moral law and a power behind that law that you have broken, that the law, uh, broken that law, and put yourself wrong with that power. It is after all of this, and not a moment sooner, that Christianity begins to walk. When you know you are sick, you will listen to the doctor.
When you know you are sick, you will listen to the doctor. The Gospel of Mark tells a really interesting story of Jesus interacting with some people at a banquet. He actually goes over to a tax collector's house. Now, tax collectors in the first century were not um, people to be admired by any stretch. They were rich, and they, take, they took advantage of the Jewish people, and they made their money in bad ways. But Jesus is over at this guy's house, and he's eating with him. And in the first century, to eat with somebody, to go over to their house and to eat with them was a, was a very clear statement. It was a way of saying, I approve of this person. And so a religious person, particularly somebody like a Pharisee, would not have set foot in the home of a person who they believed to be a sinner because they would not have wanted to communicate publicly that they approved of that person. And yet Jesus goes over to this person's house and eats with him. And the Gospel of Mark does this really interesting thing in Mark 2 when he is, he is in this setting and he is accused by people of eating with, quote-unquote, tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is accused of eating with tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus says to them this in Mark 2, 17. Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners, with the band could come up. It is... I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You know, it, this passage is interesting, isn't it? Because it could be taken in two ways. Jesus is saying this to the Pharisees, to those who believe themselves to be righteous. And so, in a sense, you could, you could understand Jesus to be saying to these, this group of people, uh, you're good, I'm here for these people, Right? Like, you, you, you religious people, you, you people who have all the law nailed down, you're fine, you're right with God, I'm here for the people who aren't, right? So just go about your business. But that's not actually what Jesus is saying here. He's actually trying to call the Pharisees to a certain type of awareness of their own sin, right? He's, he, Jesus is functionally saying, and he says this multiple times in the Gospels, that it is those who, those who know that they are broken, who know that they are in need of help, that Jesus' is, help is readily given. And it is those who are religious, who believe that uh, by virtue of their, uh, their meritorious acts, by virtue of just their, uh, their family, by virtue of the, the fact that they've been in this religion for a long time and they're very good at it, don't think they are in need of a doctor at all, right? You see, it is the religious the, and the self-righteous who are o very often the furthest from God. It is those who don't understand their own brokenness, who are very often in the Gospels the ones who Jesus is most critical of. Because it is an understanding of our own brokenness and of the brokenness of the world, an awareness of how kind of messed up things are around, around us that make us a prime candidate to receive the grace of God manifest to us in the person of Jesus. It is the people who feel and know the brokenness and sin of the world who Jesus came to heal. Christianity has always begun with an understanding of the world's and our own brokenness, but then moved from that onto the grace and love of God who made the world, who gave us this kind of moral code and now extends to us an invitation to be free of that guilt.
to have those sins forgiven and to take on the righteousness of the one who followed the law perfectly, who was sinless, who was morally perfect, that we might be redeemed, that we might be forgiven. You see, until you have an understanding of your own brokenness, until you have an understanding that there is an objective moral law somewhere out there that I have broken, we'll never be in a, in, in a place where we can healthily receive the grace of God. Jesus, Jesus will never be for the religious sim simply a, uh, a badge of honor. He will always be a symbol of the ways in which we have transgressed the ways in which we have fallen short. But he is then, then in that very same moment a symbol of God's goodness and his love. Because God is not a God who simply created a moral order, who simply wrote that law on our heart and then walked away. God is a God who did that, who created a good universe, who created a universe that, that with a morally, uh, in a moral, with, with a moral structure that leans towards goodness. Then, after we were unable to actually fully participate in that universe the way he wanted us to, again gave of himself in order that we might be free. This is what the gospel teaches us. And today, for our, our remaining time, what we're going to do as we come to the table is to reflect on that. To reflect on that. You see, Jesus, Jesus communicates the goodness of God to us. We have a moral law, but Jesus, the scriptures say, is the full representation of God to us. That if you ever had any question about whether the, the being who created the universe was actually good, Jesus is the, the physical embodiment of that goodness. A person who lived a sinless life, and despite that sinlessness, took on the sin of others who willingly went to the cross for our sins and lived, in a sense, in our place, fulfilling the moral law for, that we were for, unable to fulfill for ourselves. This is what Jesus did. And uh, this is what we remember when we come to the table of communion. When we come to the table, we remember both Jesus' uh, broken body and shed blood, but we also remember, we also remember that that broken body and that shed blood was of a perfect person. Somebody who was sinless, somebody who obeyed the law perfectly and yet chose that place, who, who yet chose to sacrifice themselves for the sake of those of us who have been utterly unable to follow it ourselves. This is what we learn from the scriptures, from the Christian story. And so, we observe communion. We come to the table this morning. If you are with us and you're not a member of our church, we do not uh, expect uh, that anybody who receives communion needs to be a member in order to receive with us. All we ask is that you follow Jesus with your life. All we ask is that you follow Jesus with your life. You know, Paul, when he was communicating this truth to the Corinthians in chapter chapter 11 of the book of 1 Corinthians, says this, on the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. And in the same way, after supper, he took, after supper, not supper, he took the cup, 
saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so today, uh, as we just pause to reflect on what God has done, my question for you is simply, where have you transgressed? What, what, what part of this moral code do you know you've transgressed? And where do you need the covering and the forgiveness of Jesus' life? You know, uh, we all need to be reminded again and again and again of the goodness of God and his sacrifice for us. This is why we've been given the practice of communion. Because Christians are people who need to be routinely uh, reintroduced to this reality. So, uh, I'm going to pray, and then uh, the table will be open. Uh, you can feel free to come up and receive at the table, or to take the elements and return to your seat for a time of reflection. Uh, but whatever you feel uh, is best, you can do. All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. And we ask that you be here with us this morning. Father, would you show us that we are in need of you, that we are in need of your covering, that we are in need of your forgiveness, and that by virtue of Jesus' work on the cross, we can be free. We can be free. And so this morning, uh, would you help us to, to see that, to remember that, and to know, God, that we uh, rest within the hands of a loving God in the person of Jesus. Amen and amen. The table is open.